When I was down at the butcher shop last week, uh, buying the Gilgandra chicken, I noticed a petition on the counter, and I'm the kind of person who likes to read petitions but not sign them, so I went up and had a little look, and um, I had a read of it. it. It was a petition to abolish Australia Day, but replace it with Australia Week, a week-long holiday where three times a day we eat lamb. So instead of one lamb barbecue on Australia Day, we should be having 21 lamb barbecues in Australia Week. And they, they were petitioning the, the Australian Prime Minister to officially recognise Australia Week. It was a joke, of course. It was actually an advertising stunt for the Meat and Livestock Association. But it had quite a few signatures. Um, people are willing to make a stand for all kinds of things, aren't they? Some causes more important than others. I want to ask you today, and as we look at John 18, this passage we'll be asking you, are you willing to make a stand for Jesus? Are you willing to stand up and let people know that you are a follower of Jesus in every and any situation that you find yourself in? Not just here at church, but during the week, at at work, with your friends, with your neighbours. Are you willing to be numbered as a follower of Jesus? Have you so understood the wonder of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross that it compels you, that you feel that you have no other choice but to stand up for him, but to tell other people about what he's done? This morning we're looking at Jesus' arrest in John 18 and Peter's denial. And what happens here is probably familiar to you. But I want you to notice as we look at it the way that John describes these familiar events. John describes them not just in a way that shows us what happened, but why. In fact, in the first half of this passage, John describes Jesus' arrest in such a way so as to show us very clearly why it was that Jesus had to die. And then in the second half of the passage, John describes Peter's denial in such a way so as to challenge us about our response to Jesus and whether we'll be like Peter or not. So firstly, let's look at the first half and Jesus' arrest, verse 1. When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he. Jesus answered, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he'd spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me, which was from John earlier on in John. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that account, one of the first things that I noticed is John leaves out the the Judas kiss. 
the kiss of betrayal. That's in all the other three Gospels. And in fact, as we read on in the next chapter or two, we will see that John leaves out quite a few things, important things. Not that he forgot them, but in chapter 20, later on, he tells us that he deliberately left some things out and put some things in to make a point. And in John 18, John wants to make the point that although Judas and the soldiers are here arresting Jesus, they're not the ones in the spotlight here. Jesus is. And Jesus is in control. It's Jesus' choice to die. So did you notice, for example, in verse 4, John's little comment, we get an insight into what Jesus is thinking. Verse 4, Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him. Jesus knows all the events that are going to unfold over this dark night. And yet he doesn't run. When he sees them coming, he doesn't try and hide. In fact, when Judas and the soldiers arrive, verse 4, he approaches them. He comes out to meet them. And his response surprises them. They're not expecting it. Twice, as clearly as can be, he says, I am he. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? I am. I'm him. That, that, those little two words, I am, actually came up earlier in John's gospel when he fed the, the, the um, 5,000. He said, I am, because I am happens to be the name God revealed himself by in the Old Testament, Yahweh, I am. And then that name Jesus used of himself again when he was talking about before Abraham was, I am, and the response was they wanted to stone him. Here, it's so confronting, so surprising, Jesus coming out so boldly, I am he, that they retreat when he says it. Now, why is Jesus coming out, um, acknowledging who he is, uh, knowing all that's going to happen to him? Well, we see why he's so determined in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? John and Jesus want us to be very clear about why Jesus is letting himself be arrested. Because this cup has been given to him by his father. Now the cup of God in the Old Testament is the cup of his judgment. Jeremiah 49.12, you can look it up later, it's on your outline. Um, We read that the cup is given to those who deserve to be punished. In Isaiah 51.17, it says this. It's on your outline again. You might want to look it up later. Awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes men stagger. This cup is likened to a cup of alcohol full to the brim that will make men stagger. It's the cup of the wrath of God. God is slow to anger. God is patient and kind. But when nations disobey him and when people refuse again and again to submit to him, God is angry. And his anger anger is unquenchable. God has a cup full to the brim, full of his judgment, ready to pour out. It is his right response to the terrible things that happen in this world. It's his right response to the things that we do wrong. And all those who continue to disobey God will be forced to drink the cup of his judgment right down to the dregs. 
every last drop. People might cry and stop. That's enough. I can't take any more. But this is not a cup that you have a choice over. This is a cup that God pours out and it must be consumed to the very last drop. In fact, King David in Psalm 75 writes about it like this. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth will drink it down to its very dregs. Now, I think that begs the question, why Jesus? If the cup of God's wrath is reserved for disobedient people, the wicked of the earth, why is Jesus going to drink this cup? Why is Jesus willing to drink this cup? He doesn't deserve it. Well, John masterfully answers that question in verse 12. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had, had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Caiaphas told us a few chapters ago, and John said when he said it, he was prophesying. He didn't even know the profound truth that he was saying, that it would be good if one man died for the people. Jesus is the one man. And he is about to take the punishment, not for his sin, the sin of the people. Jesus didn't have to drink this cup. His cup was empty. Yet he drank this cup to the dregs, every last drop. That cup is the judgment that you and I deserve. But when we put our trust in Jesus, he takes it for us. Just like, remember back to chapter 12, Jesus said to Peter at the foot washing, Peter, unless you let me wash you, you cannot be my disciple. Well, here's how Jesus does the washing. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying to Peter there, Peter, put your sword away. Unless you let me to drink the cup for you, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, willingly, gave himself up. Well, in verse um, 17, the spotlight turns from Jesus and his willingness to Peter and his unwillingness. Here is Peter and he's with a slave girl. And listen, as the slave girl asks Peter this very simple question, verse 17. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. That is the very opposite of what Jesus said. And and John goes at pains to point that out. Twice John recorded Jesus saying, I am. Twice John will record Peter saying, I'm not. I am. Ego Amy. I'm not. Uk Amy. It's the exact opposite. John wants us to notice that Jesus was willing to die for Peter. But Peter's not even willing to own up to knowing Jesus. But before we hear Peter's second denial, I'm not. John shifts the scene to where Jesus is on trial before Annas. Now, this is interesting because in all the other Gospels, the order that it gets described in is the trial of Jesus and then the three denials of Peter all in a row. That's nice and simple, the trial and then the three denials. But John splits them up. We get one denial, then we get to the trial. You know, it's kind of like in a movie where you're switching scenes quite quickly. Now, why is John doing it like this? Well, I think you'll spot it. As I read from verse 19... 
I want you to just keep in the back of your mind that while this is going on, Peter is off in the background denying Jesus and see if you notice any similarities or contrasts. Verse 19. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. See the contrast? Verse 20, Jesus said he's always spoken openly to the world. Meanwhile, Peter's not speaking openly at all. Jesus said he's never kept anything a secret. Peter wants it all to be a secret. In verse 21, Jesus says, ask those who heard me. They know what I said. Well, Peter is getting asked. And he won't admit to a word of it. Verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. The mention of the olive grove and the the ear being cut off reminds us that just minutes ago, Peter was so brave in front of Jesus. But now, alone, in front of people who don't know Jesus, all his bravado is gone. He denies ever knowing Jesus. And it's not even the high priest who challenged him like Jesus. It's not even a soldier. It's a slave girl. Matthew, Mark and Luke go on to tell us now that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Now John doesn't record that. I think it's because he doesn't want us to feel sorry for Peter. He wants us to see that Jesus is the one that we should be sad for here. He is about to drink the cup of God's wrath and he's about to do it alone. Even Peter deserting him. And in verse 27... The cock crows, just as Jesus had predicted. Now, if we remember back to John 13 and 14 and 15, where he predicted the cock crowing, um, we know that Peter's denial is not the end of the story. Things will change for Peter. Because Jesus promised to Peter and to his disciples that after he died and after he rose again, he would send his spirit. And his spirit would equip them to testify about him. There would be a time when they would be alone and deserted. But after Jesus goes to the Father, he will send his spirit. And yes, the disciples will be hated and put out of the synagogues, but the spirit will help them to witness, give them courage that Peter didn't have here. And in fact, that is exactly what happens. After Jesus is raised from the dead, after Pentecost in Acts 2 where the spirit is poured out, Peter actually becomes one of the boldest witnesses for Jesus. Turn with me to Acts 4. Acts 4 is just a few weeks later. I'm going to read for you Acts 4. Acts 4, in Acts 4, this is the same Peter who just denied Jesus. 
It mentions the same high priest who Jesus was on trial before, now questioning Peter. And again, Peter, <clears throat> Peter is with John, as in John's gospel. Peter, John, the high priest, Acts 4. <clears throat> the priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they had them put in jail till the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, And so was Caiaphas. Now they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He's the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Can you believe that this is the same Peter? Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they couldn't see the man who'd been healed, but since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing to say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now, I think that's what John 18 is all about. Once through the Spirit, we come to understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We can't help speaking about it. We won't be like Peter. That's why John sets up this big contrast between Jesus and Peter. Firstly, so that we'll see what a wonderful thing Jesus did for us. That he willingly drank the cup of God's anger for those who will trust him. We're all sinners. We're all incapable of serving Jesus unless we're first forgiven by him. In the big cricket blow up last week, I read an article, uh, it was an interview between, with Kumble, the Indian captain, 
And it was about an apology that he gave to Ricky Ponning about Harbhajan Singh's comments. Uh, so this is Kumble talking about an apology that he'd already get given. And this is what he said about his apology. Unfortunately, these days, when someone apologises, it's seen as either a sign of weakness or an admission of guilt. I'm neither unnerved nor are we guilty. Now, I don't know what kind of apology that is. When we come to Jesus and apologise for the way that we've treated God, he wants it to be both of those things, a sign of our weakness and an admission of our guilt. We're all weak. We need Jesus' help. And we're all guilty. We need Jesus to take the cup for us. We need to turn to him in repentance to be forgiven. Now, maybe you're here today and like Peter, you've denied Jesus. Maybe long ago you've left him. You've disowned him. Well, there's still hope for you. Jesus is calling you to come to him and repent and be forgiven. Let him drink the cup for you. It's not too late. But I'm guessing most of you are followers of Jesus, have been forgiven by Jesus. And the second half of the passage is a challenge for us, isn't it? We who follow Jesus, we should be like the Peter that we've just read about in Acts 4. We are living this side of the resurrection. We do have the spirit of God in us. And so why do we sometimes act more like the Peter in John 18? Who didn't have the spirit, who didn't stand up for Jesus, you know, when Jesus is around, when we're at church, we're happy to own up to being a Christian. But when we're around other people, we keep quiet. Have you ever had times when you could have told people about Jesus, but you bailed out because you're worried about what they might think? Ever been uh, in a conversation about an issue like abortion or, or different religions or people just bagging out Christianity and you could have said something, but you stayed quiet because you're, you're embarrassed to own up to being a Christian. I have. I can remember a few times when I was worried about what other people might think when I stayed quiet. That is terrible. John wants to make that very clear here. What a terrible thing it is to keep quiet about Jesus. What a sad thing it is for Jesus when he gave his life for us and we won't even put one friendship on the line for him. John wants, wants us to see what a wonderful saviour Jesus is so that we can't help but talk about him. Um, I've got an old teacher from Griffith, an uh, industrial arts teacher, and one of the kids in the class one day asked him, you're not one of those religious types, are you, sir? I heard you were. Now he could have said a couple of, could have got a couple of ways, couldn't he? Well, he said, no, I'm not one of those religious types. But I am a follower of Jesus, and I'd love to answer any questions about it. I'm sure this week there'll be opportunities where you could go either way. If you're here and you've been forgiven by Jesus, well, as you head into this week, let's remember that Jesus' forgiveness is so good that, like Peter, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and what we've heard. Let's pray.
Father, there, there's all sorts of things that we give our time and energy to during the week. But Father, here is the, one of the greatest causes that we could give our life to. Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Father, we admit that we are weak. That we can't save ourselves. Father, we admit that we're guilty. And we deserve your judgment. But what a wonderful saviour Jesus is that he willingly drank the cup to the dregs that we deserve so we can be forgiven. And Father, having seen these things, having heard these things, we pray that you might make us into people who can't help but talk to other people about it. Father, we pray this so that the people that we bump into during the week, our friends, our family, the people we work with, that they might come to see Jesus for who he is and that they might come to see what Jesus has done for them. Pray these things in his name. Amen.